Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. It's very important to have language that names things because if you don't have accurate language to name things that are going on, it's very hard to identify them. They remain amorphous. Hi, I'm Barry, and this is the Wisdom in Action podcast brought to you by the Small Giants Academy. Join me as I speak with brilliant people around the world who are working within different systems to create meaningful interventions for a hopeful future. That's the thing that I'm really seeking. What are the ways we need to chart our pathway forward? How do we find our way back to one another and reconnect to this precious world around us? How can we get ourselves out of the mess that we're in and leave a world that we want to gift our children? Welcome to the Wisdom in Action podcast. Anna Funder is one of Australia's most acclaimed and awarded writers. Her books, Stasiland and All That I Am, are prize-winning international bestsellers, and her most recent work, Wifedom, is an exploration of Eileen O'Shaughnessy, George Orwell's first wife, who had been written out of his story. I loved this book so much that I absolutely had to get Anna on the podcast, uh, not only because I think she's completely brilliant, her articulation of a system, the system of patriarchy, felt really relevant to these conversations in this season. We know that we cannot repair the current system with the same mindset that created it. And patriarchy itself needs to be continuously examined through a, like, useful, juicy lens of what does it mean to erase and omit the voices of women. So I'm just really excited to share Anna Funder with you. It felt like a liberating conversation for me as I continue to examine these systems that we're all in and ask, what is the situation we find ourselves in and where are we going? Hi, Anna. Very. This book, Wifedom, has spoken to kind of echoes in my soul, echoes in conversations with girlfriends who are in all different sectors, doing all different kinds of work. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it, which we will get into. But I'm hoping that in your own words, you could, just for anyone unfamiliar, you can give a quick rundown about what Wifedom is about and how you came to write that book. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Barry. It's such a pleasure to be on this podcast. I love the idea of wisdom and action. Uh, very exciting. So Wifedom is a strange kind of book, really. It's a book that comes out of my kind of a moment of peak overload of mothering and wifedom in my life. I'm married to a gorgeous man and we divide things pretty much equally and he's a creative person like me and so on. We lived in America for a while and we came back and he was working in these big jobs and I found myself knitting back together a life and house and cross-continental move with three small children and so on and it just occurred to me that we were living a moment in our marriage of kind of very typical and unusual for us, stereotypical patriarchal division of labour along gender lines. Uh, so it was a kind of late wake-up call in a kind of 
long and happy marriage, if you like. And I was perimenopausal, having a meltdown in a shopping centre, dragging this poor benighted French exchange student around with me and trying to finish comments on a screenplay and doing all this work. And I started reading Orwell, whereas someone who was more sensible might turn to yoga or meditation or something. But Orwell is quite good on what I suppose... You, to use your term, kind of systems thinking. He's very good at looking at systems of power from an underdog point of view. And I think that I felt a bit like I was looking at the gender division of labour in our society still from an underdog point of view. So I read my way through Orwell and six biographies of him with great pleasure. But then I came across six letters from his first wife to her best friend from their time at Oxford in the 1920s. And realized that I knew nothing about this woman and that the biographers had really ignored her and that looking closely at this extraordinary, intelligent, witty, funny woman and the marriage to Orwell from her point of view was a kind of very close look at how his incredible works came to be created and what her contribution, which has been largely ignored, might have been. So it's kind of a biography of a marriage of 80 years ago, but it's also looking at how was it that she was expected to give up a career in psychology and her very good Oxford English degree in English to be the sort of helpmeet editor, psychological counsellor, mentor, typist, person who saves his life in the Spanish Civil War and so on. And yet all of that goes completely unremarked by history. And then I was just looking at echoes of that in the modern day where we live in an age of a gender wage gap and this kind of apparent invisibility of the enormous work that women do to keep everyone going. Yeah. And and I want to just say her name because we still haven't mentioned her name because I think in many ways she's iconic or a metaphor. She's a symbol of this greater piece that we're talking about. And her name was Eileen O'Shaughnessy. And I remember hearing her name when I picked up the book and being a bit alarmed at how ordinary her name was. I, I felt like she needed a, a Greek god name, like Aphrodite, but it was Eileen and George if it is a biography of a marriage and there is so much ordinariness in it. And you're making me think of uh, one of my best friends, Monique. She's a jazz pianist and she's just written an incredible musical on the life of Stella Miles Franklin, who published under Miles Franklin because she wanted her work to be taken seriously. And Mon always uh, tells me, I haven't read the book, but the book Stravinsky's Lunch, where Stravinsky, the great composer, had eight children and his wife and eight children were invited to have lunch with him every day, but they had to have lunch in total silence, no fidgeting, no noise making, in case the maestro had an idea. And we always laugh about, oh my God, Imagine the whole world is just set up for you to be struck by the lightning of a great idea, which is, of course, not the female experience on the whole throughout the ages. That's so interesting. Stravinsky's Lunch is a book by my very dear and very brilliant friend, Drusilla Majeska. And yes, the idea that it's not, I suppose, so much that the wife and children are invited to lunch. I mean, presumably the wife has organised either made the lunch or organised for the lunch to be made. And he wants their company at lunch. He could have his lunch presumably brought to him, even if he doesn't make it himself, in a room so as not to be interrupted. And then he wouldn't be interrupting the lives of his family and making them sit through lunch in enforced silence. So there's something so curious about that act of power and control when it's completely unnecessary. Is that act of power and control over your wife and children somehow necessary to the artistic spirit to make you feel more of a man, more of a genius, more powerful over your environment when you can require people who you apparently love to eat in your presence in silence? You know, it's a very interesting scenario and Drusilla does that so beautifully in her book. 
that lunch is in my mind as an image evoked by one of my best friends who's a composer and an extraordinary musician herself um, and single mother of two daughters. And we always laugh about the tending to the hearth and home when we all lust for that level of power and control that Stravinsky supposedly had. Of course, everybody wants control. Everybody wants dominion over so that their narrative and their life force and their purpose has primacy, that everyone's in service of that. There's a part of all of us that is drawn to it. And I think as mothers, we can see how destructive that seduction is. But we often talk about it as a kind of lure to each other. Can you imagine? Everybody's silent at lunch in case we have an idea because we're just trying to grab ideas when they land, maybe 5 a.m., quickly. Maybe a girlfriend took the kids and you've got an hour, a whole precious hour to get the meat on the bone on the page or on the piano. So it's the scrambling for things. And I too am married to a, a beautiful, supportive man. And we've been together for 20 years and we've done a lot of things together. And still, so much of your book was really an echo of things in my soul and things I hadn't named. And I I really want to read this because it's the core thesis of the book. And it's a hard conversation to have, I feel. Even the word patriarchy can evoke culture wars. So we'll get there in a second. So you say patriarchy is a fiction in which all the main characters are male and the world is seen from their point of view. Women are supporting cast or cast It is a story we all live in, so powerful that it has replaced reality with itself. We can see no other narrative for our lives, no roles outside of it, because there is no outside of it. In this fiction, the vanishing trick has two main purposes. The first is to make what she does disappear, so he can appear to have done it all alone. (gasps) I just read that and I was like, oh my God, yes, this is my grandmother, this is my mother, this is me to a degree, less but still... And the second is to make what he does to a woman disappear so he can be innocent. This trick is the dark, double-thinking heart of patriarchy. As I read the biographies, I began to see that just as patriarchy allowed Orwell to benefit from his wife's invisible work, it then allowed biographers to give the impression that he did it all alone. And so I write, as Orwell put it, because there is some lie that I want to expose, some fact to which I want to draw attention or as it happens, a person. Nobody so good. said anything with anyone who's read that. Um, you read it so beautifully. Well, because as you write it, it kind of lands. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, patriarchy is a word that has gone in and out of fashion. I think it's coming in again, but it went out for a long time as if it were taboo to say that the world really is in general run by men who have most of the top jobs, most of the money and most of the leisure time. So when we say they have most of those things, we're comparing that to women who have less of them. So patriarchy is a system in which men are central and women somehow peripheral. You know, this sort of strange sentence you sometimes hear, like we have to look out for the rights of women and other minorities. It's like, well, women are not a minority. (laughs) They're not a minority. So it it, it exists really at the level of our language, which is to say at the most basic level of our thinking. Men's thinking and women's thinking, we are all in this system that makes us think these things and that then apportions certain kinds of respect and certain kinds of work, visible or invisible, to people according to gender. And I think patriarchy is like a set of magic goggles or a set of glasses that brings the world suddenly into focus in this way where you're thinking about genders as being different. And we all, you know, most of us, many, many people like you and me, adore the men that we live with and adore our brothers and husbands and everything like that. So these things are quite hard to talk about because we're talking, as you say, about a system that makes all of us and apportions work and respect and time differently. So we really have to talk about it because if we don't, we'll never be able to readjust those levers. Even though I really want to talk to you about this, I am really tentative to talk about the word patriarchy. I am 
finding it. Like while you're talking, I'm like, yes, give me more language because I have two sons and a daughter in the middle. It is a gendered world to some degree. We're trying to model something different. As you mentioned in the book, you and I are privileged women in Western democracies. So we have a particular experience, nonetheless real. And it feels, I don't know, taboo or difficult because of the context of the culture wars and the information wars. And I feel like a lot of the movements around investigating power dynamics have just, the remedy is to invert the power pyramid, put those who weren't in power in power. But I actually think there's potentially a richer conversation to be having. It's not an inversion of the power pyramid. It's something else. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's very important to have language that names things because if you don't have accurate language to name things that are going on, it's very hard to identify them. They remain amorphous and things that you you don't know. So if you have a word like patriarchy that just names a system in which men are central and have more power and money and women are peripheral and have less, without the word even as sort of taboo, which is interesting, as taboo as it might be seen to be or as, see, people take that word as if it's an attack when actually it's naming a system which exists. So to not be able to name the system is to be necessarily entrapped by it. If you can't talk about it, you can't change it. So to name it is not an attack. It's only an attack from the point of view of somebody who has the power and doesn't want that changed. So if you look at a really extreme example, so say a a system of slavery, if we didn't have the word slavery and we didn't talk about it, it wouldn't be possible to change. If we just said this is reality and to say the word slavery is provocative and agitating, it's only provocative and agitating if you're somebody who doesn't want the system to change. And I think all our husbands, daughters, sons, we want this system to be identified so that we can release ourselves from these shackles. In the case of, say, Me Too, you know, which is a much more recent example, we didn't used to have so much. My daughters have, I have two daughters and a son, and they have much more language around all kinds of things. I lived through and experienced, for sure, and didn't have the language to identify. And the reason that that language wasn't around when I was young is because it would have been seen as shameful for me to say, this law partner is sexually harassing me. That would have been on me. And there was no language and no avenues around it. To talk about mansplaining or to talk about coercive control, we didn't have those terms. Having the terms is super important in order to identify what's going on, not just in terms of shifting the shame from victim to perpetrator, which is also necessary, but just so that we're all liberated from these things. If you can't say it, you can't see it. Yeah, I love that. And I work a lot in finance. And of course, patriarchy as a system, as a sort of an overlay in how we think and how we move is overlaid on the economy. The economy itself is behaving from that lens, naming patriarchy not as a weaponized word, but as like a a key in the door for new systems thinking, for emergent futures to arrive to us because we're able to let the veil drop and imagine new possibilities. I love that. That's so profound. Patriarchy spelled K-E-Y at the end. Oh, I love that. That's so perfect. I didn't see the word formation like you did. I love it. What? You did it. That is so perfect. Yeah. The patriarchy to the door. Okay, cool. We've nailed it. We can can finish. We can wrap this up. Um, So the book is really, it's so brilliant in how it drills down into the examples of how it functions. And I have so many questions, like obviously about how it resonated for me. I think there's one thing here that I marked around time. This is one perfect example. The more I looked at Eileen and Orwell's life together, the more I felt the long ago dynamic reverberate disconcertingly in my own. Access to time as to any other valuable good is gendered. One person's time to work is created by another person's work in time. The more time he has to work, 
the more she is working to make it for him. How was that reflected in your own life and have things changed since you've written and named these things for you? I was talking generally there, but I think that I I like the idea of thinking about time as an economy of time in a family or particularly parents with small children is when I notice it. You know, you're always bargaining for time. And like you, I'm speaking as a very privileged white woman in a rich, peaceful country, married to a really great guy who's intelligent and hardworking and does lots of stuff on the home front and enormously involved with his kids. And it seemed to me like given those great privileges, it's up to me if I'm still noticing these things in the world to talk about them because as far as we know, we all live in patriarchy. There is no other place on the planet. So I've got this position where I can speak about it. And then just thinking really deeply about it, that's what it seemed to me to be like when I observe still today around me these discussions within couples about who does what or no discussions and expectations about who does what. And I just think I'd like this book to be, as we're saying, a key or a prompt to a kind of liberating discussion because Men are sort of entrapped by the expectations on them as well. They're just different and they end up differently in terms of the gender wage gap or massive superannuation gap or whatever it is. And so that's what I wanted to to look at, these differences. And Gloria Steinem says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. So I think there's a kind of element to that, to thinking about, patriarchy as a as a key. So I think we're in a, a pretty difficult time because the tech corporations are really harvesting us and misinformation and disinformation and lack of regulation and transparency. I mean, a woman can go on to advocate for the end of domestic violence and suffer such violence on those platforms, the full brunt, the full force of the amorphous mass of social media and and those platforms and the access to hate. And I don't know why I went there, but I was, I think I was thinking about how we're in these systems, in these systems at the breaking point, at the end of the story. We're at the end of the story of patriarchy. We're at the end of the story of the economy as an extractive, dangerous dynamic. You know, we need to live within the bounds of the ecosystem of the ecology and and hopefully towards human flourishing. And this bit of the erasure of women, I'll say two things about it. I really want to know your thoughts. One, I really participate in that. I think that I have actively put my husband in front of me to be a shield and take the full brunt of the force of the world. Like there's something about that vulnerability, that I use him as my frontline general. I can acknowledge that. There was a time where he said, you know, I don't want to do this particular work anymore because it hurts me in the finance world. And I had to really check myself. I was like, oh, but that's what men do in my idea of men. They go out and they hunt and gather and they bring back and then we reap the rewards. And I realised that I participated heavily in those things, in him going out the front. And maybe, yes, he gets the OAM and he gets the rewards and the awards and the the public acknowledgement, but I played some part in it. Does that ring true for you? Yes, so many things in that ring true. I love these kinds of conversations that are so creative because what you're saying is sparking ideas in me that I hadn't had. So this tech world, for instance, where there is so much online hate and misogyny directed towards women, whether it's Julia Gillard or any woman who sticks her head up above the parapet. I think what goes on there is that these platforms allow anonymous hatred to be directed at women. And many, many people, you and me included, are utterly shocked at the amount of that hatred, the vehemence of it, and the sexualized nature of that misogyny is incredible. It's all permitted because of anonymity. 
And I think this goes to one of the points that I'm making, perhaps in Wifedom, which is about the difference between private life and public life. One of the reasons that we don't know about how Orwell treated his wife, that six biographers of Orwell weren't keen to look at, so they were very much intellectual equals. She was at least as smart as him and she had an Oxford degree in English and he hadn't even been to university and so on. So he relied on her for an enormous amount of intellectual and cultural and political information and ballast. And also, from what you write, it sounds like they wrote Animal Farm together. They did, yeah. She was enormously involved in the writing of Animal Farm. He wanted to write an essay critical of Stalin right at the point when Stalin was helping uh, the Allies win the war. And she had been working at the Department of Censorship in the Ministry of Information in London. So she knew exactly what could and couldn't be published. And she'd studied under Tolkien at Oxford and knew about fable structure. And they worked every night together on that book. So she changed it really, his ideas from an essay critical of Stalin that would have been unpublishable to a very beautiful novel that has her whimsy and wit all over it, and is utterly unlike anything else that he ever wrote. So yes, that's true. But I think that this, the idea that you can hide by anonymity in the modern tech world your hatred of women or you hide it in history by saying the private life of a man is a sphere that is entirely his own we are not going to go in there and look at that a man's home is his castle he can do what he likes which is code for he can do what he likes to his wife and the public man can be seen as decent a man of integrity a man who would never you know tell his wife that he was being unfaithful so that it was very painful to her, or be monumentally unfaithful everywhere, or cruel, or sexually assault women, or so on. It's as if all of those things remain unspeakable. But it's from that unspeakable world, which has remained invisible, that we are also getting all of this anonymous hatred. If men had to put their names, so their public faces, to all of those comments, I think they would be enormously reduced if not practically eliminated. So it's like this public-private split. Now, the most extreme example of that is when I was a law student in the late 80s, rape was not a crime in marriage, which is to say there was no such crime. And that's in jurisdictions in the UK, Australia and the US. So the theory of marriage was you sign on the dotted line on your wedding day and that is consent once and for all time. And so the fact that that has been changed in my lifetime to something much more equal and reasonable and humane, which is you need consent every time from both parties, is extraordinary, really. And that is just the kind of thing that we're talking about. You have to think it before it can be changed. And then once it is, we look back and we think, oh, my Lord, that was so bizarre and extreme. But what about the thing that I said, which I feel I have a vulnerability moment about, where I was like, we use the men as shields. Yeah, I think that that can definitely be the case. And I'm looking, when I think about Eileen, she, in that particular instance as well, she finished up with not quite the top, top first class degree from Oxford that she wanted. It was a high second. And I think that blew her confidence out. So in a way, she was using Orwell, this completely unknown writer who she met who was a kind of moth-eaten, chain-smoking scarecrow of a man when she met him. She was using him in a way, as you're describing, but in the writing world, as somebody to write through, to get writing done through, if it's not too extreme to say, to do that. And I think she would have liked then to write herself after Animal Farm was finished, but she did What's coming up for me that is quite amazing, I didn't even piece it together, in my own story of talking about um, that in my own marriage and, and life and career and work and mothering. I had three children. And so physically in my late 20s to mid-30s, I was physically deconstructed and reconstructed. You know, as I said to a friend yesterday, they break you in, in order to remake you. You know, I had to become a new person in order to care for these ducklings. But in Eileen's case, what is so striking, she never became a mother biologically like that, but she is bleeding the whole way through the book. And there's this aspect of the vulnerable physiology, the, the feminine body and its rhythms and its 
so earthbound in that way and and can be so vulnerable, I think there's something taboo in having that conversation as well and that she used Orwell to write through because she was physically constrained and vulnerable for so much of her adult life. That's true. Is that that bad of me to say? (laughs) I feel like I'm saying things that are terrible to say. I don't think they're terrible to say at all. I think this is the stuff of life. And I think what you describe about being unmade and then remade by our children and the process of having children is so profound and so beautiful. And I have found that as well. And I feel enormously grateful for that. I'm very, very happy to be a woman and a mother and being a mother is the central experience of my life and the greatest, the greatest experience, really. Eileen had probably endometriosis, we don't Mm. know. So on the one hand, she was very thin and she was bleeding and towards the end it was getting extremely difficult. She was very anemic because of it and must have felt awful. At the same time, she was doing, for most of the marriage, an enormous amount of physical work in the garden with animals, cooking three meals a day, and working in sophisticated jobs to support them both financially, especially during the war, as I said, the Ministry of Information and then the Ministry of Food. So she was physically, although she looked frail and thin and was bleeding, actually she pushed herself very hard and was enormously strong. So she would work all day at an office shop at lunchtime, go home and cook for whoever had been bombed out and then be washing up at midnight, hop into bed with Orwell and go over Animal Farm, what he'd done that day and what they would do next. So it's a a very full life that I think in some ways she absolutely loved. In other ways, it must have been very draining. I think we're also talking about like another one of my interesting observations even about myself. I am very drawn to brilliant men in particular and genius men of history. I I also am reading their biographies from Jefferson to you name it. My bedside table is full of historical biographies, men and women. I've always been drawn to both, but brilliant men, really, the genius is a big seduction. So I'm curious because you did love Orwell. You read the biographies. How did you discover Eileen? You talk about it in the letters, but what was that sleuthing that got you to save her from the erasure? Yeah, from oblivion. Yes, there are six main biographies of Orwell. They were published from the 1970s to the last two in 2003. And I read all of those. And then in 2005, this wasn't my discovery in the archive or anything glamorous and sleuthing, but six letters from Eileen to her best friend with whom she'd studied at Oxford, Nora, were discovered among the effects of Nora after she died she left these letters to her nephew and they were found in the nephew's effects and they came to light in 2005. And they were actually published in, like Peter Davison is a big Orwell scholar and he published this kind of addendum book with letters in it after he published the collected works of Orwell. And so they're available in print. I only came across them after I'd kept reading, after I'd finished all of these biographies. These letters date, there are six new ones from 2005 and they date from the beginning of the marriage in 1936 to the end of the marriage in 1945. So it was sort of like there were, there was this wife's eye view of the creation of Orwell the writer and of what it was to be married to him and of life at that time in the Spanish Civil War where Eileen went and basically saved George's life and worked in a political job there, which you would never know from reading the biographies. And I had to uncover right through the war in London and so on. So the first of these letters she writes to Nora, this is the first one that I read, I'm, Dear Nora, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write to you. It had taken her six months to write to her best friend because Nora lives in Bristol, which is far away. But we have quarrelled so continuously and really bitterly since the wedding that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. And I just thought, who are you? You are hilarious. What have you been quarrelling about since you got married? Because I I discovered that she deleted the word obey from her wedding vows, something that Orwell and the biographers do not credit her with at all. So this woman who will not promise to obey is arguing with him during the first months of marriage about 
whatever those circumstances of living are. And then why does she want to kill him? even as a joke. So I went back to the biographies and I had a look at those pages where I opened up and looked at the newlywed period and the biographers generally say things like, Orwell had never been happier before or since. Conditions were idyllic for him. And that's when I had the idea. I just thought in between his idyllic conditions and the person who wants to kill him because she's under pressure to make these conditions, I presumed, Maybe there's room to explore and certainly there turned out to be a lot of room to explore. So she's really witty, she's really funny and she says a lot of things in a kind of semi-whimsical, semi-joking, very self-deprecating way that are nevertheless very true. So the end of that letter she says, for instance, to Nora, I have tried to come and see you but every time I leave, if George has notice of the fact he gets something, so he had he had tuberculosis. He falls ill so that I have to stay home. And if I leave and he doesn't have notice that I'm going, as I have done twice, he gets something as soon as I've gone and I have to come home. So she's saying to her friend, this is what's happening. I'm trying to come and see you, but his needs are calling me home. At that time, of course, they don't have language around that. We haven't had it till recently. Some people might call that controlling behaviour even coercive control. So the fact that she doesn't have the language 80 years ago doesn't mean that she's not identifying clearly the behaviour. And I think if you identify that to your best friend and you say this is what's going on, with or without the language you're describing it, like a novelist would describe it, you also are under the impression that because you can write about it and you can tell your friend, you are forewarned as forearmed, that you can then handle this but you're also telling your friend, just in case, I want you to know that this is happening just in case. And I think then looking at the marriage from that very first letter, we see a lot of that kind of behaviour through the marriage and we see what that does to a person. What did it do to your love of Orwell? How did you reframe him in your mind once there was a thread that you pulled and realised all is not as it seems? What I came to see was, so my enjoyment of Animal Farm is doubled because I took, I know it took the two of them to make. And I can clearly see, and I hope people can see when they read Wifedom, the voice of this witty, self-deprecating woman who she was described as somebody who would tell stories about all the people in their lives, including herself and George, as if they were all characters in a book. She could tell stories about the hens on the farm and the goats. They had two goats because he was obsessed about goats. She called one of them Mabel, which is, I think, after one of Orwell's ex-girlfriends, and the other one, Nellie, after his aunt who came and overstayed her welcome. And she wanted to write a book about these hens maybe. I mean, she's clearly a great imaginative writer and a keen observer of people. So to read Animal Farm is is more enjoyable. I think if we look at, say, 1984, which is his other best-known work and probably second best only to Animal Farm, which he wrote without her, It is a very powerful and important book because it's about living in a surveillance society, which we do now. We have what Orwell would have called a telescreen in all our pockets at all times with phones and cameras everywhere and facial recognition and so on. I mean, it's a deeply Orwellian world and we're relying on the democratic procedures in our country to protect us from misuse of that, which happens in many countries that we could name today. 1984 is an important warning. It's very prescient about how power works and total power works in surveillance society. It is also, though, a book that contains very early on a fantasy that nobody kind of notices. This is a book we give to our 16-year-olds to read at school. Two of my children have done it. Winston fantasizes about raping a woman and slitting her throat at the moment of climax. These things tend to go rather remarkably unremarked. So it's a book that's full of violent, sadistic, misogynistic, paranoid imagery about rats or towards women or whatever it is. To imagine, as I might have before I knew what I now know, and as some people would like to continue to imagine, that the man who pulled that sadistic, misogynistic, paranoid and violent view of the world accurate as it may be and frightening as it is from himself, to imagine that he was some kind of hail fellow, well-met, everyday, underman, ordinary guy 
it's naive. It's like expecting Superman with his undies on the outside to write Proust or something. These artistic works come from people who dare to go inside themselves as complicated, mixed up human beings like we all are and pull that difficult vision from themselves. So I think it's more admirable as well as more accurate to see him as this complicated man rather than to try and airbrush him. No airbrushed man or version of an artist could write such powerful works. But we don't have to live with him. We can enjoy the work and the work is richer for knowing about the man and the marriage out of which it came. I love that because I think with the fantasy construct of Orwell through those six biographies, you could think, oh, he's so insightful to write about that violent misogynistic vision. How keen an observer of the other, like another kind of man. But yes, as you say, to say, well, actually it was his inner life that he was drawing from. It is very powerful and I hadn't thought of it like that. So I love that. And I think the thing we probably haven't spoken about, but it's it's in everything in all of my notes here, is just the omission and the erasure itself. And uh, you say here, I've underlined and ear tagged most of the book, but you write here, Orwell mentions my wife 37 times. And then I see not once is Eileen named. No character can come to life without a name, but from a wife, which is a job description, it can all be stolen. That was really heavy. There were many things in the book that felt just very true, very heavy. I do it still when I tell my story. I usually prefer to tell the story of my grandfather and my father to me as opposed to my grandmother, my mother to me, even I erase the women from the story or I feel like I'm scrambling to reinsert them and without them, none of it was possible. They were absolutely the creative partners and they absolutely created the conditions for all of it to work. So it's harrowing because I see myself laying a part in this story of erasure and omission and I don't how do we, where do we go from here? And how do we do it, transform the world for our kids without having to destroy everything in its place or, or, or weaponizing? How do we name and disassemble in that loving way, the way our kids remade us to be fit for purpose and care and love? Oh, that's such a beautiful way to put things. I think that is the question. And I think it's the purpose of works of art to pose these questions. This is a bit like once you pose the question with whatever words, which are the tools you have to do it, like this is a discussion of gendered work allocation and recognition of our mothers and grandmothers or wives or whatever it is. Once we have the discussion, everything is on the table and suddenly visible. So the way that you talk about mother love, then it's suddenly visible. It can't be taken for granted because it's so massive and we've named it and it's out there. You know, if we're talking about Stravinsky and the silence, once Drusilla tells that story, it's so massive that we can clearly see what we're up against, if you like. So it becomes then not so much us and them at all. It becomes a mutual act from both sides of recognising this. I feel I recognise that blindness in myself as well, as you say, about mothers and grandmothers and so on, and about my own life. So I'm writing wifedom to identify these things and put them on the table for myself as well as everybody else. I'm certainly not directed against any men at all. It's like let's all look at this and make it visible and then we can sort it. If you can't see it, and you can't say it, you can't afford it. I love that. And it makes me think, first of all, I don't want us to be like being really polite and lovely about it. No, really, it's not an attack. We we love you. It's irritating that we have to even do that. And yes, it's an and always. It's not but, it's and, which is like my favourite word, and. And I think that my favourite word is how I see history. So instead of a revisionist history where you say, 
Orwell didn't write Animal Farm. Eileen did. It's an and Eileen did too, which is much like, I don't know if you've seen the statue of the bull of Wall Street, that big, um, incredible bronze statue and how they put the little girl in front of the bull statue. And I wish that for us, like what you've done with the book, it's an and. You've got the old narrative faced with the new narrative and they're in dialogue for that something new that emerges in the middle, in the space between. No one has said it better, Barry. That's exactly what's going on. It's like, okay, there's this history that we've had, say, for and I take, for instance, that comes in these six biographies and to some extent in Orwell's own accounts. So you say in Homage to Catalonia, it's his account of the Spanish Civil War. You wouldn't learn from reading the biographies that Eileen had a job at the political headquarters of the office in Barcelona while he's off in the trenches and really doesn't know what's going on and that she saves his life in Spain. And he doesn't write about it in his account of his time in Spain. You barely know that she's there. Just looking at this is the received history and then Wifedom, for instance, just because we're talking about my book today, can take its place just sitting there as just saying, well, actually all of this is also true and has to sit somehow alongside what we already know. And I'm also saying as well, actually, there are conscious and unconscious ways in which the history that we've received has deliberately often and sometimes just by cultural trope gotten rid of the women who made it possible or who were there or who saved the life and so on. Because both of those things are interesting. If we're really going to put both bits of information next to each other, both versions of history, it's also instructive to see how is it that the version that I'm offering was gotten rid of or ignored because those mechanisms of, say, using the passive voice, conditions were idyllic rather than saying Orwell was incredibly happy he could write a lot because his wife had come to do all of the work of garden, house, editing, typing, social life, etc. So those methods, just to the extent that they might still apply, that you and I might even as educated, sophisticated, privileged women still be slightly putting ourselves in a, or, or playing ourselves down or self-deprecating or not even being really aware of all the stuff that we're doing. I just want to, it's a kind of an exercise in awareness, I think. And straight away, it made me think, of course, there are so many people in the world whose work is invisible. And that conversation is being had, which I think is incredible. And the living systems all around us on the land and in the oceans and the rivers, the planet itself, all sentient life is invisible. The invisible work from which we all extract in this kind of mindless momentum wrapped up in our identities, not even bound to something greater than ourselves, not even bound to our context. This is about that sort of opening of the aperture and including as much as we can. I think it takes courage because you have to let go of comfortable narratives to include more in order to move forward. And that can feel um, destabilising and, and harrowing and scary and all of the above. And I think we're experiencing that in the world. I think that's true. And I think it's so important to look at all of these relationships, as you say, because they might be extractive or exploitative. They might be externalising costs onto the environment or onto other people or onto other countries or kicking the can down the road of whatever the cost is going to be or the cleanup's going to be or the damage is going to be. I think that's right. And I, I'm very hopeful that with these new ways of talking about whatever those relationships are between men and women, between people and the planet, between countries are being had. I'm so glad to be living now for those reasons. Yeah, and, and just to close that thought for me, I went and intergenerationally. Like we've had it erased from our culture to even talk about future generations 
as being omitted from this present moment of decision making. We need to reweave it all back in and fit as much in the pot as we can. I love it. Anna, thank you so much. You are very wise and I really, really love and admire your work. So thank you for the gift of your latest book. Thank you, Bear. It's been so lovely to speak with you. Great ideas sparking between us, I think. Yeah, the patriarchy. We found something. (laughs) Someone needs to draw it. Yes, if you know someone who wants to draw the patriarchy, um, I'm here for it. Please. Oh my goodness, Anna Funder is a legend. I love my job. She is one of Australia's beloved writers. Get out and read her book, Wifedom. It really threw me when I read it and I was, ooh, ah, when I was reading every second page. was ear-tagged and underlined as she named things in her beautiful beautiful rich way and I agree with Anna like when we have language for things it's not about labeling things I think that's what I felt it's not about labeling it's about naming there's something different about those two conventions labeling puts things in a box and naming things sets everyone free And so there's something so generative in this conversation. I felt really nervous to have a conversation about the patriarchy. Um, Dan and I talk about it all the time. If it's used in a weaponized way, it isn't helpful because everyone gets weird and defensive and shouty. But if it's used as Anna and I were saying, as the patriarchy, the key in a door to unlock all of our awareness and imagination to dream into these other future possibilities for how human beings can live on this earth and include even more in our telling of our experiences. Wow, I don't even know what happened just now, but I'm loving it and I hope that you all are too and that it was as nourishing for you as it was for me. I'm also conscious that it might feel like maybe some of you heard it not in a good way. I don't know. I was a bit self-conscious in it, going, ooh, will people hate that I just said that? So it's funny, the self-censoring that happens even as a woman talking with a microphone. Um, I, I censor myself worried about trolls because there are trolls in these woods and I think maybe that's a sign that we need to have the conversations to exercise the demons from our psyche collectively and together. That's all for now, folks. Much love. This episode was part of a special 10-part season where I've been exploring systems thinking in the metacrisis. But we also have an incredible catalogue of episodes from our previous podcast, Dumbo Feather. I speak with some of my heroes like Esther Perel, Nate Hagens, Brene Brown, Johan Hari and more. So if you want to listen, they are there on the Wisdom in Action podcast, available on your favourite podcast app. If you want to turn this wisdom into action, go to smallgiants.com.au for more information about the incredible programs and events we run. You can also find pieces of wisdom that you can turn into action for each episode at smallgiants.com.au forward slash wisdom and action. And of course, I absolutely love hearing from you. You can connect with me on Instagram at Berry Feather, follow the podcast at wisdom and action, or write to us at podcast at smallgiants.com.au.